This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. Just a reminder before we get started with today's episode that we still have one more week left in our end-of-the-year fundraising drive, so there's still a chance to donate and be a part of our end-of-the-year campaign. If you enjoy these stories every week and you want to help us continue bringing you this free podcast in 2022, please go to storycollider.org donate and be a part of our story. In today's episode, both of our storytellers are looking for a little help. Our first story is from Story Collider's own Jitesh Joggy. It was recorded at our outdoor show in Chicago last September. The theme that night was vital. Jitesh originally shared this story at one of our online shows in 2020. Thank you. Thank you, Lily. Um, Thank you to the other storytellers. Thank you, the audience. Thank you to Story Collider. Thank you, Scott, for this space. Thank you. To, I, I don't really care. I'm just procrastinating. Um, <clears throat> I have a problem. I touch myself a lot. Not in the way that you're probably thinking, but it is pleasurable. I pull the hair that grows on my face obsessively. I did it for six years before even realizing that it's a thing I do. I guess I did it unconsciously or perhaps deliberately avoided thinking about it because it sounds so crazy even to me. My condition is called trichotillomania. And even though it's a mouthful, it's important to name it, to call it out in the open, because it thrives on secrecy. And for years, it was my dirty little secret. But one day, my wife caught me in the act. We were laying on the bed, watching some cheesy rom-com movie, And before we even reached the meet cute, I felt my fingers across my cheeks, brushing against my two-day stubble. I had unconsciously began searching for the perfect hair, flipping through each strand like I was picking a book from a library shelf. And finally I found the one, a thick strand of hair. hold it between my thumb and my index finger and as if to tease myself I give it a slight 
tug, then snap. I pull it out. Give me a dopamine boost. What is this thing that you do, love? My wife asked. Immediately, my reflexes kicked in. I pretended to scratch my face. Oh, no, it's just my chin gets itchy sometimes. I lied. On the bed, on the floor next to me, were hundreds of little tiny little hair from my face. And I scattered them with my feet, literally sweeping my problem under the rug. That night, I couldn't sleep. Could there be others who deal with something as weird as this? And how do I even go about inquiring about it? Like, hi, Jenny, I'm doing good too. And how about you picked any eyebrows with your bare hands then painted over the area with a pencil lately? It's just not conversation for polite society. But I needed to know more. When I typed hair pulling in Google, it led me to a pawn site. It was clearly not what I was looking for, but I stayed, <laughs> just to be sure. <laughs> Over the next few days, I kept searching with like other variations of random keywords, and finally I came across the term trichotillomania, and it gave me a shudder, especially because it contains the word mania in it. And I was scared that my fear that I was a mad person doing crazy things was indeed true. But the more stories I read on the internet about trichotillomania, and there were hundreds if not more, the more I came to the realization that it's not something to be ashamed of. Birds do it, animals do it, humans occasionally do it. It's just that some of us forgot where the off switch is. So hair pulling is not something that I do voluntarily. It's something that I cannot stop doing. The difference is that it pegs the problem correctly, one of impulse control. So armed with this new knowledge, I finally found the courage to tell my wife, Whitney, she listened to me and did not call 911 on me. That changed something. Out of the two people who now knew about my condition, only I was the one who thought of it as appalling behavior. My partner, who deals with mental struggles of her own, thought nothing of it. Fine, she said, we'll just get a better vacuum. Now I was sort of a little bit getting assured to start looking for a cure. Habit-changing exercises, gadgets, affirmation only took me so far. I would resist the urge one day, and I'll get back to it the next. Until last year, when I came across an ad by the University of Chicago that they were conducting a research study for a new, to test a new drug for trichotillomania. And I leaped at the opportunity. They signed me up and put me on the test drugs immediately. And as part of the research, I was required to um, to maintain this diary, this journal, where I was supposed to write down my every move regarding hair pulling every day. And over a period of six weeks, as I recorded in my journal, every day, my every move, 
every urge, every action, I was surprised to observe that day after day, I was spending less and less and less time pulling my hair until it reached zero. The drug had worked. Until I was told that I was part of the control group who was given a placebo. <laughs> now, <clears throat> I was torn between feeling happy that I was no longer pulling my own hair paranoid that I had just fooled myself with the help of a very elite university and that my condition was going to return. But until it strikes back again, I was going to do something that I've never done before and could never do before. I was going to grow a beard. I had always wanted to grow a beard. My wife had downright demanded it before she knew of my condition. She'd always seen me clean shaven because I could barely go beyond a day or two of stubble without just plucking bunch of hair from my face and leaving behind an uneven patchwork. It looked like I was carving the world map on my face. So I thought, for the next few weeks, why not enjoy a beard until the condition returns? And it has to, right? The placebo effect has to wear off at some point. Months passed. And my beard had started to seamlessly intertwine with my chest hair and I couldn't have been happier. <laughs> it never returned. Turns out, that humble little diary, that journal made all the difference. Recording and journaling my habit, dragged it from the unconscious and shed light on it, forcing it to be seen and to be grappled with. The more I observed it, the more I wrote about it, the more I talked about it, the less power it had over me. Repetitive behaviors, nail biting, hair pulling, skin pulling, all of these thrive on shame and secrecy and they diminish with kindness and awareness. Today I'm clean shaven again, but out of choice. Once in a while I do rock a beard just as a reminder to myself that something that had so much control over me that made me feel that I was losing my sanity, that made me hide from people even before the quarantine, that it has no longer any control over me. I look at myself in the mirror and in my journal. I'm kind of proud of my recovery. So, so on those days, I wear my beard as a sort of as a crown and as a thank you note to my partner. That was Jitesh Jaggi. Jitesh is a recent immigrant from India, currently living in Chicago. He ended his career in finance one day when he lost all his data that he forgot to save on an Excel sheet and realized he didn't care. That tipping point led him to become a writer, and he is currently working on a book of essays. He is a two-time Moss Story Slam winner and a producer for The Story Collider. He loves writing bios because he can refer to himself in the third person. Jitesh can be easily bribed with books and chocolates. And once again, before we continue, Story Collider is still in the midst of its end-of-the-year fundraising campaign with one more week left. We are a small nonprofit organization. We depend on the support of our listeners to continue producing these stories and bringing you this free podcast every week. 
If you want to support stories like the ones we're sharing today, go to storycollider.org donate and be a part of our story. We're so grateful to everyone who makes this work possible. You can also find more information at storycollider.org about our upcoming shows and workshops. And now for the first time ever, you can even purchase Story Collider merch. Find out more at storycollider.org. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Our second story today is from Devin Sandiford. It was recorded in October in front of a limited private audience at The Tank in New York City. The theme that night was Lessons Learned. It's 2018, and I'm sitting in this dimly lit room in Midtown. Um, I don't know exactly if I'm in the right place, um, but I am sitting in this chair, and there's like these magazines off to the side. And I'm in my early 30s, and I'm supposed to be at my very first therapy session. I have gone to the doctor and the dentist my entire life, uh, multiple times a year for the dentist, every year for the doctor, but this is my very first time going to the therapist. And I'm a little bit nervous, and there was also no sign on the door. And I'm really bad at directions, so I'm like worried that I'm in the wrong place. And I'm, I'm sitting there waiting, and our, the time that the therapy session was supposed to start has already passed, and I'm like, I feel like I might be in the wrong place. I try and call the therapist. She doesn't pick up. And I'm like, man, what am I supposed to do? And there's like a door in front of me to the right. And there's a door in front of me to the left. And I'm like, I think I just have to like kind of just go in. Like, is this how you how it works? And so I, I wait a little bit longer, as long as I can. And then I'm like, I got to do it. And I build up all the courage I can. I crack the door open. I look inside. And sure enough, there's like a lady sitting down at a desk and a lady sitting down on a couch. And I'm like, oh, sorry, is this a Dr. So-and-so's office? And she's like, yes, but please just go sit down. And so I like quickly go sit back down. And a few seconds later, she comes out with the lady. And as soon as the lady walks out, the therapist just gives it to me. She's like, do not ever open my door. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like, I didn't know if I was in the right place. There was no name on the door. This is my first time here. And she's like, I don't care. Just do not open the door. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. And uh, we walk into her office and I sit down on the couch and I'm like, this is not off to a good start at all, not at all. 
And I sit down and, and she takes a seat, not even behind the desk, but kind of in this like uh, chair that's off to the side. And I see her take off her shoes and she puts her feet up on her desk. And I'm like, what is happening? Like, this must all be set up to like, just see how I react. Like, it's about your brain and like how your behavior is. So maybe this is like some setup. Like nobody's just gonna put their feet up on their desk. And I'm like, no, she just leaves it there and starts asking me questions. And I like, I do my best to try and open up, but one question after another, as soon as I start answering, I feel like she's asking me another, another one. It's like 21 questions, just one after another. And I can't really pull myself together. I'm glad when we get to the end of the session and I'm ready to leave. And she's like, you know what, Devin? I'm so sorry about what happened when you came in. I was actually the one in the wrong. We were supposed to have our meeting 15 minutes earlier and I completely got lost in the track of time. And I put you in a really hard spot. That must have been tough for you in your first time. I'm so sorry. And I'm like, that was a really good apology. Like, was this planned? I think like this part must be planned too. Like, I don't know what's happening. So I'm like, oh, thank you for saying that. And uh, she's made me feel a little bit better. So I decided to do a second appointment. And on my way to the second appointment a, a week later, she gives me a call and she's like, where are you? And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, we're not on for another 30 minutes. She's like, no, you're supposed to be here now. And at this point, I'm like, okay, you know what? Forget it. Like, I don't know if it's me. I don't know if it's you, but this is just not going to work. And I, I just, that's it. I'll just go back to doing what I was doing before, which is a perfectly fine method, not quite as scientific, but what I was doing before was working just fine, just pretending like everything's fine. <laughs> and so that's what I decided to do. And I, uh, don't even think about a therapist again. I tried it and it felt like I needed therapy from the therapy session. So <laughs> not a real thing. I don't, I don't think I need it. And I was actually um, with a friend and she was telling me like, no, like that's how therapy goes. Like you just have to, uh, therapy's like dating. You have to like date around to, before you find the right therapist and you have to go one after another. And um, at that same time, I had seen this really great TED talk about like the science of psychology and how people don't think it's a real science and um, how people will go to the doctor if they have a problem with their leg, but they won't go for their mind. And I thought, you know what, this all makes sense. Like what they're saying is exactly true. So I decided I was still not gonna go to therapy <laughs> because I figured like, it's really hard to find a therapist and I'm just fine. Uh, the reason I had decided to go to therapy in the first place is when I was six years old, uh, my mom's youngest brother was shot and killed by the police. And that was really tough for me, but at the same time, I was six years old when it happened. I was the youngest in my family. My mom seemed like she was perfectly fine. My siblings, who had known my uncle, uncle longer, was perfectly fine. I had only known him for six years, and I was a baby, so I just figured I would keep on going on, and if everybody in my family could be fine, I could be fine as well. And I, that's what I did for about three years until the spring of 2020 hit. And all over the news, there was one black life after another just being shown murdered. And it was really tough for me. And I thought about that I actually have a therapist in my life already. Um, when I said I had a therapist in my life, it was actually my wife's therapist that I decided to steal. And sure enough, I, you know, I set up an appointment with this therapist and this time, because it's in the middle of COVID, instead of going into an office in Manhattan, I get a chance to sit down in my own bedroom, in my own desk, in the comfort of my own home um, on a Zoom screen. And I, I am, this time I'm sitting across from a person of color, an Asian woman, and the woman before was I, a white woman. And it, it, I, I realize now that I probably shouldn't have done that. And 
as I sit down with this therapist, uh, right off the bat, um, she's making me feel comfortable. She's like maybe 60 years old, but she's like calling me dude. Um, and it, it just like makes me relax. And I, I feel like we can just like get right into it. And sure enough, like she asks me questions, but when she asks me questions, she's not ready to ask a follow-up question. There's like this long silence afterwards that like means that I'm supposed to continue talking. And as I go through these, uh, and she gives me the space to like continue talking, I find myself starting to cry. And I don't often cry, but as I'm in these therapy sessions, I just begin bawling for all the things that I had like repressed and held in. And she takes me through all these things about accountability. She takes me through all these things about uh, not holding things in. And she teaches me to have the courage to speak to my parents because I've never spoken about what happened when I was six years old. And so I talked to my mom and I talked to my dad and I talked to my uncle, and I'm doing such a great job in therapy. She decides that we're gonna go every two weeks, uh, twice a week, I should say. Um, and so I'm going through all these sessions. I'm starting to feel better. Everything is like starting to turn around. I'm finally expressing myself, and um, she sends me a text message. It's like the end of, uh, end of 2019, or end of 2020, she sends me a text message. She has a sinus flu. And I'm like, okay, like, um, take care of yourself. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, mm, sinus flu, like, I think this might be COVID. And so I tell my wife that and she's like, no, like, why would it be COVID? And I'm like, I don't know, just like, it just seems like in my mind, that's what it is. And she's like, no, like, just relax or whatever. So I do that and I just wait for two weeks um, to see if I hear anything from her and I don't. And I don't know if I should call her because it's like, she has her own personal life. Um, and I, I wait for another week. So it's been three weeks now. And I finally tell my wife, like, no, I think something's really wrong. And she's like, yeah, I think you're right, too. Like, I think Susie didn't want to work with us anymore. I'm like, why would she not want to work with us? That's like a crazy idea. I'm like, but then I think about it and like, mm, maybe I, my idea is crazy. The fact that she would like have COVID. Why would that be the case? And she would have let us know. So I like calm myself down again and, and decide to like revisit it if she doesn't get a hold of us. And so I wait for a little bit longer. We decide to uh, reach out to the person that put us in contact with this therapist in the first place. And she reaches out to like other ones of her friends who have been going to this therapist for 20 years. And they're like, no, it's nothing. Like, yeah, if, she, if there was something wrong, she would have let us know. And I'm like, that, that seems reasonable. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, I don't know, just something doesn't feel right. And so uh, as I'm sitting in my room, Every single day, because it's in the middle of COVID, I decide I'm going to start like Googling her name. And so every few days, I'll put Susie into Google and just see what comes up. Susie Vicencio, her last name. And I search and search, and I don't see anything until one day I'm sitting at my desk and I see an obituary pop up. And my first thought was like, I don't know if this is her. It was like a young picture of her, and it had a different first name. It had Susie in like quotes. I'm like, hmm. Maybe this isn't her. And I was like trying to trick myself to like uh, be okay. And I, I decided that like I better go and just tell my wife because she's been going to this therapist for longer. Like if anybody's going to like need to know, like she's going to be the one. And I actually waited for my wife to come out of the bathroom and I showed her the obituary and I said, I think this is Susie. What do you think? And she's like, yeah, I think so too. But let's let's check with our uh, with my friend and see what she thinks. And so we send the obituary to our friend and she sends it on to the clients who've been going for 20 years. And they confirmed that, like, this is our Susie. And when, it, when that first was confirmed, I thought to myself, like, ah, oh, that's terrible. Like, uh, I felt really bad for those people who had been going to her for 20 years. They felt, like, so 
Like that would be a really strong connection. I felt really bad for my wife who had been going to her for a really long time. And she, Susie actually had uh, like a 21-year-old daughter. And so I felt like all these people would have the right to mourn. And for me, it was just like I only knew her for six months. Um, and that I, I didn't really even know her actual first name. So what right do I have to like mourn? And I just decided to go on with that until one day I was in the shower and all of a sudden, just like a flood of tears started streaming down my face. And I started to think about Susie being the person that I had told the most to in my life. I had never shared these things with anyone. I never felt safe before. And I had shared them with her. And even though I had only known her six months, that I had had this bond with her. And I realized that the things that she had been teaching me over those six months was that I deserve to mourn. That even though I had known my uncle for only those six years, that I had a connection to him and a connection to my family that meant that I should not be repressing these things and that I should actually be working on trying to get to a space where I see myself as being important enough to cry. And I just let out all the tears for my uncle, all the tears for my mom, all the tears for Susie, as I thought about the lessons that finally were sinking in, that psychology isn't real science, and that there are actually scientifically proven methods for dealing with things, and one of them is not pretending that you're fine when you're not. And I was so thankful to Susie. Thank you. That was Devin Sandiford. Devin is the program manager of community engagement at The Moth. Born and raised in a small town in Southern California, Devin spent his childhood and adult years keeping his personal stories hidden from almost everyone. Then, feeling a voice within him longing to be heard, he moved to Brooklyn, New York to push himself out of his comfort zone and find his voice. Devin is now a published writer and award-winning storyteller. His stories have been featured in the Washington Post, the Moth Podcast, Writing Class Radio, and other outlets. Devin is also the founder of Unreeling Storytelling, a Brooklyn-based organization dedicated to finding people who are quietly waiting to speak and yet urgently needing to be heard. Find out more at devinsandiford.com. The Story Collider is so grateful to Jitesh and Devin for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of the Story Collider, with assistance from Story Collider's program director, Nissa Greenberg, and senior podcast editor, Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, Marketing Manager Nikisha Roberts-Washington, and our intern Jamie Banks, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Lily B. and Jitesh Joggi, and by me, Aaron Barker, and Zach Stovall, with assistance from Paula Croxon. Our theme music is by Ghost. We'll be back next week with more stories live recorded at shows. Until then, thanks for listening. Thank you.